Well, good morning. As I mentioned last week, I love those videos, just hearing people talk from the heart. We're not coaching them or anything. They're just talking about what God is, is doing in their lives through, uh, through Burning Bush Baptist Church. So I want to begin this morning with a definition, a definition of the word rivalry. The definition reads, competition for the same objective or for superiority in the same field. You know, there are some great rivalries out there, and then there are rivalries with a capital R. We all know the difference between the two. There's Pepsi versus Coke, Star Wars or Star Trek, Beatles or Stones, Microsoft versus Apple, General Motors versus Ford, McDonald's versus Burger King, dogs versus cats. Those deserve capital letters. And you know, great rivalries can be huge enough to impassion countries or states and certainly cities. They're powerful enough to launch fiery debates on seemingly mundane subjects. And they can be small and strange enough just to consume a few people for many days. And of course, the sports world has all sorts of rivalries, right? Cardinals versus Cubs in baseball. Packers versus Bears, the Celtics versus the Lakers, Cowboys versus Redskins, Magic versus Larry Bird, Ali versus Foreman, college basketball, Duke in North Carolina, Kentucky in the University of Louisville, Louisville. and then of course you've got the college football rivalries, Auburn and Alabama, UCLA and USC. And uh, Arizona versus Arizona State. In fact, I read something really kind of neat. Arizona State just recently built a new football facility, completed it about two years ago. And in the middle of the facility, way up high on the wall, there is a countdown clock. And that clock runs continuously. And you know what it's counting down to? Their football game with Arizona State. And it's just always reminding those players about the most important game of the year. Now, of course, in our part of the country, there's no big rivalries, right? Between any of the universities, right? Am I right? So we have any uh, University of Georgia fans here this morning? All right, that's kind of lame. I'll give you another chance. Any Georgia people here this morning? All right. And some of you would say, you know, that's, that, that's where my heart is. It belongs to the, to the University of Georgia. How about Alabama? We have any Alabama people here this morning? Man, i got to have a little noise, a little bit of noise from the Alabama people. Not much, huh? I can still kind of feel some tension, though. Yeah, there's definitely some tension in the building. So what about the University of Tennessee? Now, I think the University of Tennessee fans, you really don't have any tension. You're just, just kind of glad to be back on track. Your rival might be uh, Georgia State now, I don't know. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> That's all right. 
y'all can pray for us Dallas Cowboy fans. I was raised in Texas. At least Tennessee made a postseason bowl game. The Cowboys are in purgatory for as long as Jerry Jones is there, I guess. But here's what I want you to realize. When it comes to a rivalry, you have to choose a side. It's just the way rivalries work. And uh, don't worry, this is not going to be a sermon about sports today. We're in week five of this series called I Love Our Church. And I've loved this series. And today we're just going to be kind of talking about a, living a lifestyle of generosity. Don't hardly ever talk about money here. It's been well over a year since I've spoken about money. But I just want to talk about that because it's something that's really important to God. Jesus talks about living a lifestyle of generosity a lot more than he talks about a lot of other subjects like hell, etc. But I want to remind you, when it comes to your love for God and your love for church, and remember what we said a couple weeks ago, you can't separate your love for God and your love for Jesus. They go hand in hand. You can't say, I love God, but I don't love the church. You simply, the two go hand in hand when you read Scripture. But when it comes to loving God and loving the church, Jesus makes it very clear who his main rival is. He makes it very clear who his chief competitor is for your heart. And this is what he says is your chief competitor. He uses the word mammon. Mammon is the word that he chooses. And I'm sure you've kind of heard that word before. But I want you to know that word means more than what you think. And he uses that word four times in the New Testament. And I want to go to just one of those passages that's found in Matthew chapter 6. And look what he has to say about mammon. And as I begin to read, starting in verse 24, I want you to listen to the rivalry language that Jesus uses here. You can look it up or the the verses will be up here on the screen behind me. Starting in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Nobody can serve. Not a single person can serve two masters. So Jesus is making clear, you cannot serve two people at the same time. I wonder how many of you have ever been in a job where you had like two bosses that you had to answer to? And it's just miserable. I mean, you got one of them telling you to do one thing, and you got the other one telling you to do something else, and, and you're just kind of caught in the middle with these uh, conflicting instructions on what you're supposed to do. Or I don't know, don't raise your hand. But have any of you guys ever tried to date two women at the same time? Yeah, that usually doesn't work out too good. It's all right at first till one of them finds out, and then, you know, you're kind of toast after that. It doesn't work so good. Or going back to the sports analogy, when it comes to a rivalry, you, you can't root for both teams. I mean, it just doesn't work. You have to root for one or you have to root for the other. You know, it's, it's overtime and there's 15 seconds left. Who are you going to root for? Well, you can't just say, well, I'm not rooting for either one of them. You've got to root for one or the other. You have to choose a side. And this is Jesus' point. He says, no one can serve two masters. And he goes on and says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You have to choose a side. And then in the next phrase, 
Jesus kind of gives us our chief competitor with him for our hearts. And before I read this, I think this is really important. It's really significant. This is the only place in the New Testament that Jesus says, you can't serve God and this. It's the only place. That, to me, says it's pretty important. You cannot serve this and still serve me. And this is what he says. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, your Bible probably translates that word as money instead of mammon. But the word that would have come out of Jesus' mouth would have been the word mammon. And so the first question we have to kind of answer this morning is, what is mammon? Well, it's an Aramaic word going back into the first century. And it's a word that translators have had trouble translating for years. And they've just kind of settled on the word money. But really, it's a much bigger idea than just money. It's like that, that, that translation just makes it too simple and doesn't get to the core of what Jesus is talking about in this important verse. Because think about it. Is money inherently good or evil? It's neither. It's neutral, right? I mean, you can do lots of good things with money, and you can do some very bad things with money. And Jesus could have chosen some words that were very neutral, but he chose not to. Now, some of you may be thinking this morning, but, but doesn't the Bible say that, that money is the root of all evil? And that's one of the most misquoted scriptural verses. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. So maybe you're following along with me and you're thinking, okay, so what you're saying, Pastor, is that, that Jesus is talking about loving money. That, that's kind of the idea then. And that's closer but it's still not the idea. That's, that's not exactly it. I mean, think about it. Do you actually love the piece of paper? I mean, do you sit there and you go tell people, well, you know what I love about money? Is I just love the design, right? Or do you say, you know, I just love the detail of the president's face. That, that's what I love. How do you, you know, I just love money so much. Why don't we just wallpaper our home in money? It's not the paper we like. What is it we love about money? It's what we think that money can give us. It's what we think that money can bring into our lives. So when Jesus uses this word mammon here, and by the way, the root of this word actually means that in which someone trust. So when Jesus is talking about this, the idea is deeper than money. It's almost like he's referring to a, to, to a spirit here or a false god that is trying to control your heart and your mind. And it wants all of you. But you know who else wants all of you? God does. God wants your heart. And by the way, if you just like go on the internet and look up mammon, there are some terrible images there. I mean, most all of them are. In fact, there's, there's one of them. 
Here's another one. Here's another one. I mean, they're just creepy. And, and the list just kind of goes on. You know, it, 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 it's just, it, it just kind of indicates that spirit that is vying for everything of who you are. There's some other uses of mammon in our modern day culture. Mammon is actually the arch devil of hell in the game Dungeons and Dragons. Mammon is also the villain in the comic book Spawn. Mammon is the son of Lucifer in the movie Constantine. And this is going to kind of surprise you. I know it did me. If you go back to the original charter documents of Duke University, the actual name of their mascot was Mammon, the Blue Devil. That's not true. I just made that up. <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, I knew it. But here's the thing. Mammon is linked to a lot of bad stuff. So let me give you a definition. Mammon is a false god that promises you something. It says you can trust money to give you what only God can. And here's the problem. Mammon is a liar. Mammon cannot deliver on its promise. Yet we kind of fall into this trap, don't we? We think somehow, you know, that, that mammon will give us security. You know, if I just had more money in my bank account, I'd be set. If I just had more money in my retirement account, man, life, life will be good later. By the way, I read this yesterday, and I'm not trying to be a Dennis Downer this morning, but the article basically said that, you know, it used to be $1 million was kind of your target goal for retirement. Well, $3 million is now the new $1 million. And that, that's, a, that's a pretty big figure for a lot of folks that are trying to get to. But yet, we, 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 we want to put our security in those types of things. Mammon promises you significance. If I just had a little more money, a nicer house, a nicer car, some nicer clothes, people would think better of me. People would, 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 would give me more respect. Mammon promises you the marriage that you always wanted. If we just had a little more money, then we wouldn't fight and everything would be good and, and our kids could have everything that we want to give them and, and what we want for them. And Mammon promises you happiness and joy and peace. But God's the only one that can give you security. God's the only one that can give you significance. God is the only one that can give you the marriage that you've always wanted. God is the only one that's going to give you happiness and peace and joy. Yeah, mammon makes those promises. If I just had a little more of it. And you think, well, then I wouldn't need God, right? I wouldn't have to depend on God. And perhaps nowhere is mammon more powerful than America. I mean, if America's financial institutions crumbled, I mean, it'd be terrible, wouldn't it? And you know what's interesting about us in America? What is the phrase that is on every single piece of currency? In God we trust. So every time you pay for something, you're saying, I'm not trusting this money. I'm trusting in God. Do you believe that? Is that the way that, that, you, that you really think? Here's the big takeaway this morning. Your heart will always follow your money. Your heart 
will always follow your money. Over in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, You can't serve both God and money, or God and mammon. But if you jump back a few verses earlier in verse 21, and this is a verse I think a lot of times we kind of overlook, but it's very relevant to this passage, and it's, very, it's a very deep statement. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This word treasure, it means every single cent, every asset you have, everything that you have to your name. So it's not just talking about money, it's talking about everything. And then that word heart there is cardia. You might recognize that when you have the word cardiac, it comes from that word. And it's just loaded with meaning. In this particular case, it's the same word that Jesus uses two chapters earlier when he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. It's the same word, cardia. And so Jesus says, I want you to, to understand this principle. Wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be. And I just want to kind of illustrate this this morning because I think it's really important. So I've asked for a couple of volunteers. So Sean and Brad, if y'all could come on up here. I did give them a heads up that they were volunteering. Didn't ask them, but I did give them a heads up. So, this bucket, and Brad, I'll let you hold the bucket, if you'll keep that part of it facing out. This represents our stuff. It might be money, it might be resources, whatever it is. It represents our stuff. And Sean, I love you. No. <laughs> now, this represents, this represents our heart. All right, there is a rope or a chain, a connection, whatever you want to call it, between our heart and our money. And here's what most of us think. Go ahead, Sean, stretch out a little bit. Don't, don't tear my stuff up, but stretch out. All right, we think that our money follows our heart. So you guys walk together, keep the rope tight, walk across the stage. So that's what we think, that, that, our, that our money and our treasure is following our heart. And that's not true. It's not what Scripture says. It's really not even how we live. Like lots of you, there are things in your life that you really care about that are really important to you, but you're not giving any money to it. You're not, you're not giving any time to it. Yeah, you say they're important, but if you look at the Scripture, it says your treasure, that your heart follows your treasure. So it's really the other way. So if your treasure is your stuff, that's where your heart's going to be. We get that mixed up a lot. Thank you, guys. Let's give these guys a big hand. I've already got my wife a box of chocolates for Valentine's Day. That's what I'm talking about, ahead of the game. But we get that mixed up. Our heart is following our treasures. So if our treasures are in the wrong place, and we know this is true, right? You just kind of evaluate yourself a little bit, like... Like, think about your budget, your checkbook, whatever. For most of us, what's the single biggest expense in our budget? House, right? Mortgage payments. For most of us, that's probably, probably the biggest thing. And ladies, you know, you love to fix up your houses and decorate your houses and, and watch HGTV and fixer upper and all that kind of stuff. And maybe you wonder why that is. Because it's kind of where your treasure is. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. 
I'm just saying that we need to make sure we keep it in perspective. Guys, you know what happens? You buy a new truck, maybe it's a Ford F-150, and you're washing it all the time, and you're keeping it clean, at least initially. And, like, you never even notice, like, Ford F-150s, but then you get one, and, like, you see them everywhere and all the different colors and, and all the different options because it's kind of becoming your treasure. And maybe stock market. Maybe you're watching the ups and downs of your retirement account, or if you've ever got like just a single stock, and every day you're like checking to see if it's going up or it's going down, because that's where your treasure is. Maybe you say, well, pastor, listen, I don't do a lot of stuff for myself, but I got these little bloodsuckers at home, these little rugrats, right? And, and they kind of suck the, 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 my treasure and my, my resources out of me. I mean, kids, not, not, not rugrats. But uh, here's the point. I'm not saying don't buy a house or don't buy a truck or don't have a retirement account. I'm not saying this afternoon you call the kids in and say, sorry, honey, pastor said I couldn't spend any more money on you. It's not what we're talking about. But there is a connection between your heart and your treasure. It's connected. And wherever your treasure is, your heart is going to follow that. And listen, God doesn't need your money. That's not what we're really talking about today. We're talking about your heart. God is loaded. He's not up there paving the streets with gold going, come on people, send some more money up. Got to get this done. That's not it. But God wants our heart. And he wants to make sure that mammon or money is not controlling our heart. And when you practice a lifestyle of generosity, it ensures that your heart is in the right place. And you know the principle of generosity, some people fight it. I mean, I just mentioned generosity some days, or we're going to talk about money Hardly, like I said, hardly ever do that. But there are certain people that just kind of cringe when you, when you mention those kind of things. You know what generosity is? It just means every single time you get paid, you designate the first thing to give back to God, your local church, or whatever else it is. And it directs your heart back to God. And you know what I believe? I believe Satan will do everything he can to get you to not practice being generous. And why is that? Because he knows that if you practice a lifestyle of generosity, Satan knows that if you do that, it loosens his grip and it directs your heart toward God. And do you know why I think a lot of people struggle with generosity? Let's, let me just personalize it a little bit. I think this is why we struggle. Because if you kind of go back to the Old Testament, kind of the starting point that seems to be suggested is 10%. And so people do the math, and they, you know, they figure the 10%, and when they do that 10% number all at once, the bottom number goes from a positive to a negative number. And people say, you know, to God, God, I'm sorry, I can't give right now. When I get some more money, I'll do it. When I can afford it, I'll, I'll do it. I, I just need a little more. And who is that talking? It's mammon. It's the false God that says, when you have a little more, then that'll be the answer to your problems, and then you can be generous. 
But what happened? What happens if you step out and you step out and trust and you practice generosity and God miraculously meets your needs? Would that not transform your heart on who you can trust? God versus mammon. And by the way, that is probably the story of every single person that practices a lifestyle of generosity. Every single person who practices percentage giving. I have never met a person whose finances were in disarray, and I went up to them and I said, man, what happened to your finances? Oh, you know, I started, I started tithing at church, and it just, that was the end of it, just ruined my finances. I've never talked to anybody like that. Never, ever. And I don't think I ever will. Because God promises that if you trust him, he will take care of you. And it takes taking, putting your trust in God, not mammon. That's what it takes. 10%, that's kind of the starting point that, that, that is oftentimes pointed to. But, and, and I was reminded of a story I read about a, a, a dad who was trying to teach his daughter about giving. And uh, so he brought her in. Her name was Carly. She was five years old. And he had a stack of $1 bills. There were 10 $1 bills. And so he says, honey, when, when, when God blesses you and you get, you know, 10 of these, then you need to give one back to him. And she looked at him and just kind of said, and daddy, real excited, you mean you get to keep all nine of them? Isn't that a great attitude? You know, the, the, the faith of a child you know, a couple weeks ago, I was, I was sharing with our men's group, and we were just kind of talking about giving. And, you know, when you get to the New Testament, it, it talks about grace giving, and that's why I suggest percentage giving. But it's kind of interesting to go back in the Old Testament and just kind of study how they gave. And I'm just going to kind of do that for a minute because I think it's really fascinating, and we have some misconceptions about giving even in the Old Testament. As I mentioned before, 10% was kind of the starting point, and I think most of us think, well, that's what the Israelites were expected to give, 10%. But that was really just the starting point for them. Over in Leviticus, it says... A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the tree, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And this meant that 10% of all their produce and all their animals was given to the Levites or to the priesthood. No Israelite had any option about this. But that's just the start. There was also a festival tithe, which was 10% on top of the other 10%. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 12, this began to take place when Israel crossed over into the promised land. And it was used to celebrate and build community among the Israelites. So now we're at 20%. But we're not done. There's a fourth tithe mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 14. At the end of every three years, it reads, Bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and may be satisfied, so that the Lord your God may bless all you in all the work of your hands. So this was basically provided for the welfare of those who couldn't take care of themselves. So if you do the math, it was 10% every three years, so that makes it 3.3% a year. 
So now we're at 23.3% and we're not done. They were also commanded to leave the corners of their field, not to harvest them. And the reason for that is so that poor people could come and harvest the corners of their field to feed themselves and also for travelers who happened to be passing through so they could sustain themselves. So then there were other taxes from time to time. An example is the third of a shekel that was used to pay for the rebuilding of the temple over in the book of Nehemiah. There were non-required offerings that involved taking the first fruit of their crops and their produce and giving that to God for different projects. Uh, free will offerings and things like when they built the tabernacle. Over in the book of Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And here's what's interesting about that passage. You go to chapter 36, and, he's, and Moses brings that up again. He tells the people to stop giving because they've given too much. So bottom line... Most people believe that, that the Israelites were given about 25% a year. Anybody like a commitment card this morning? Of course, I'm kidding. The New Testament, grace giving is taught. That's giving from your heart. And I believe that means percentage giving, and 10% is a great starting point. But whatever it is, that should be the first part out of your paycheck. Because it shows that you're committed and you're trusting God. Listen. If you're thinking this is just about giving to the church this morning, you're missing the point. It's about your heart. It's about practicing a lifestyle of generosity. Yes, as believers, we should give to the church, but we should also just be practicing a lifestyle of generosity. And I'm also not talking here about giving like it's an investment. Okay, well, if I give, then God will give back and bless me, right? So it's like an investment, right? That, that's not what we're talking about here. That's prosperity gospel. And I'll just be honest with you. That is so wrong. It makes me sick when I watch those people on television and some of the things they say. It's just wrong and it's so unbiblical. But God does promise to take care of us. He promises that. Now, it may not look like what, you know, like some kind of investment or return, but he does promise to take care of us. And over and over in my life, in, in, in my wife's life, my family's life, we have seen God take care of us as we practice percentage giving over and over. Sometimes it was big things. Sometimes it was little things. But God always took care of us. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily always mean it was how we thought he was going to take care of us, but he always took care of us. Always. And, and he blessed us. Now again, I'm not saying this is an investment strategy, but I am saying God will take care of you if we put our trust where it needs to be. Now yeah, if you're, if you're out there, you know, Charging more stuff than you have income coming in, that's on you, not on God. If you're not putting biblical principles into practice, that's on you, not on God. But when we give and we put God first and our hearts in the right place, He promises to take care of us. In fact, I think sometimes when, when God realizes that He can trust us with His resources, and remember this, God doesn't give our resources just for our own benefit. 
He gives those so that we can that we can bless the world, so that we can bless other people, so that we can further His kingdom. I think sometimes we get that confused. Well, the 90% is mine, and that's that. No, it's all God's. He just happens to let us be the stewards of it. But when you're willing to, to open up your fist and to give, I think a lot of times God sees that in you, and then He begins to funnel His resources through you because He sees that you'll use it for kingdom work. So where's your heart? Is it God or is it mammon? God will never have your heart until you practice generosity on a consistent basis. Because every single time you get paid and you practice generosity, it directs you toward kingdom purposes. And then let me just mention this. You know, sometimes it's even possible that even when you're giving, it becomes such a rote thing that your heart still isn't where it needs to be. And I don't know if some of you, that might be the case. You've been giving your whole life, but it's just a rote thing and you're not even and thinking about it anymore. So where's your heart? And then let me say something else this morning. Burning Bush Baptist Church is one of the most giving churches I have ever seen. So many of you practice a lifestyle of generosity. I mean, I am just amazed at what I see. I mean, giving to the general budget of the church, giving to mission projects, giving to special projects of the church, giving to individual needs, people have lost jobs, people are struggling, people have got a mountain full of, of medical bills, relief efforts. I've just seen over and over the way so many of you practice generosity. But I know not everybody does that. And again, this is a heart matter. This is not about giving per se to the church. But where's your heart at? Is your heart directed toward him? I pray this morning, and I'm going to pray for all of us in just a minute, that you'll have the courage. Maybe it means stepping out a little more in faith for you to make sure your heart's in the right place. But I'm going to pray that you have the courage to do that. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you, and Father, I thank you for the folks that are sitting in front of me this morning, those that are over in the B3 service too that are, that are watching, and Father, uh, I thank you so much for the generosity that I see displayed here, just, just the good things and the, and the way that people are so generous here, and they practice that lifestyle of generosity. But I pray for everybody this morning that maybe this is a reminder, maybe it's a, a new challenge. But Father, just, just help us to be those kind of people. Our mission statement says, be generous. Help us to practice that. Help our heart to be in the right place. Not giving because it's just something that we do, but giving because we, our heart's with you. And help us to understand that, that, that our treasures, that's where our heart is. I don't know if there's folks here this morning that need to have the courage to make some changes. Maybe it's in their expenses. Maybe it's in their budgets. Maybe it's just a heart matter. But Father, I just pray that you give them the courage to do that and step out in faith. Father, thank you for loving us, loving us unconditionally. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.